Well, last week we looked at the church in Philadelphia and Jesus' letter. Remember, these are actually Jesus' letters, too, that we're looking at, the seven churches. And we saw that that one was the, uh, that was the only church of the seven in Revelation in which Jesus brought up nothing that required a change, nothing that required a warning. He said that Philadelphia had little strength, but they kept Jesus' word to them. They were faithful. And this morning we traveled about 48 miles up, up the Lycus River to Laodicea. Here we find a church that Jesus did not have a single positive thing to, positive thing to bring up. And it's the only church in that category among the seven. And there's just a shocking contrast between Philadelphia and Laodicea, I think on purpose. Even in the nearly dead church of Sardis, there's at least a faithful remnant, but not so in Laodicea. So the first thing to look at is, well, how does Jesus identify himself to the church? In verse 14 of chapter 3, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The word of the Amen, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Well, in the previous six letters, we've seen that Jesus emphasized an aspect of his character that John saw in his vision that was at the end of chapter 1. And that quality was something that each church needed in order to be a faithful witness in a culture that was hostile to their faith. And Jesus' self-description for Laodicea is not taken from that vision, but it's taken from John's introduction back in chapter 1, verse 5 which in turn is based on Isaiah chapter 65. It is there that the Lord actually describes the joys of his true people, both Jew and Gentile, in their eternal home. He, this is Isaiah 65, 16. He who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth, and he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. Now the God of truth there is literally the God of amen. Now in this letter, Jesus is going to bear witness against the Laodiceans. He's going to deliver an awful threat followed by a very exceedingly gracious promise. So he identifies himself first off as the one who has the authority to say these things. When he says he is the amen, he means that he is fully reliable. He is God's confirmation, God's yes to all the divine promises. I mean, amen is simply a transliteration of the Hebrew word amen that means firm or true or faithful. It's the same word that Jesus would use when he wanted people to understand what he was about to say because it was important. And he would say, often translated, truly, truly, I say to you, it's actually amen, amen, I say to you. So, and the next phrase that he gives us here in this verse defines amen, which is the faithful and true witness. Now, he's emphasized his truthfulness before in these letters, but here he adds the word faithful. So he's not only telling us the truth, but he tells all the truth. He doesn't hide anything. He speaks plainly and he clearly and he reveals the entire truth. So this letter is not to be taken lightly. It is the word of God, with all his firmness and truth, and all his reliability behind it. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses of today, just like the Arians of the 4th century, would take the next phrase in verse 14, 
For Jesus is called the beginning of God's creation to mean that Christ is not eternal with God the Father, but he was the first and the greatest creature that God ever created. I mean, he might have created them before the beginning of creation, but he was still a created being, high and exalted. Now, Jesus had told this particular congregation 30 years before this time that that isn't the case. That's a misunderstanding. Because in Paul's letter to the church in Colossae, which is a town just 10 miles upstream from Laodicea, he instructed it, that book to be read in Laodicea also. So the church is already familiar with passages in Colossians, like the one I picked out here, chapter 1, verses 15 through 19, where Paul writes, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So the Christians in Laodicea would have known that the phrase, the beginning of God's creation, meant that Jesus is God, and that he's the beginning of God's new creation, as demonstrated by his resurrection from the dead. They, and we, are elect exiles remaining among the earth dwellers. While we have a new identity in Christ, and eternal citizenship in God's kingdom. Right now we are as ambassadors in a foreign land, and it's getting more foreign as time goes on. Now, we can confirm that that's what Jesus is getting at by looking in chapter 5, verse 13 in Revelation, where he says, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. So Christ here, the Lamb of God, is worshipped by every creature. But back, in, but you go further on in the, in the book of Revelation, in chapter 19, John remembers he tries to worship an angel, but it was strictly forbidden. The angel says, don't do it. Only God is to be worshipped. So when they're worshipping Jesus here, his status is much greater than any kind of a created being, much greater than an angel, because he is to be worshipped. So the one who speaks to us in this letter is God the Son, the source of all God's creation, including us. So therefore, he has all the power and the reliability to accomplish his threats and to fulfill his promises. Well, why can't Jesus find anything to commend in this church? There must be something. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Whether you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. So the one who is truth itself, the one who alone can speak with complete knowledge, the one who has complete authority over both the old and the new creation, Jesus knows their works. Not just what they do, but why they do it. Now, I don't believe what he's talking about here is the fact that they lost their fervor in serving the Lord. I mean, many people teach that based on these verses, we need to renew our enthusiasm for serving the Lord. We need an enthusiasm as we serve him. 
So we had to put more effort into what we do. Uh, they like Ralph Waldo Emerson, for instance, who said that uh, nothing great was ever accomplished without enthusiasm. Or if you pay attention to the words of the American theologian Joel Osteen, you get this. The word enthusiasm comes from the Greek word entheos. Theos is God. When you are enthusiastic, it means, simply means you are full of God. When you get up in the morning excited about your future, recognizing that day, that day is a gift and go out with a spring in your step, pursuing your goals and passionate about life, then God will breathe in your direction. So it starts with you, and then God fills in the gaps. I don't normally get up in the morning excited about my future right off the bat. I mean, I'm just glad I still have one. And my step is more than like a shuffle than bouncy. But looking within myself to try to drum up enthusiasm, it sounds like bondage rather than freedom. But it's a common element in our modern therapy-driven theologies. You can have joint enthusiasm because they're only emotions. You can become hot for God. All it takes is the right music and the right podcast. So if we're only talking about emotions, then why does Jesus say hot and cold? If he's referring to my heart, I can understand why he wants it to be hot. He wants it to be responsive. But why would he want it to be cold? I thought having a cold heart was a bad thing. So I'm convinced that, Jesus, that our emotions is not what Jesus is getting at here. Because he says, I know your works, not how you feel. I know your works, not your level of enthusiasm. Well, how can works be good when they're cold or hot? Well, it shows just how much Jesus knows about this town. Just like Philadelphia, Laodicea was located where it was because of its proximity at the intersection of major trade routes. I mean, Philadelphia didn't know that it was sitting over the epicenter of major earthquakes. But the founders of Laodicea did know they didn't have access to good water. They're located on the Lycus River, but that's a milk-colored, sediment-filled, semi-viscous fluid that can't be really considered potable. You can't even filter it. So the drinking water source for Laodicea had to be imported. Now you actually built clay pipes up to three feet in diameter, and they move water five miles away. Of course, through the hot sun. So when that water arrived in town, it was lukewarm at best and barely drinkable because of the high alkali content. So I'm sure that wine and distilled beverages and yogurt and Evian from Colossae were what folks actually drank. Because just 10 miles south, this town of Colossae was noted for its ice-cold, great-tasting water. It was refreshing, especially when you lived in a hot climate like that. Now, just five miles the other direction is the town of Hierapolis that was noted and still is for its mineral hot springs. It was a source of healing. People went from all over the empire there to bathe in the calcium carbonate-rich waters at Hierapolis. And if you're standing on the hilltops of Laodicea, which is actually built on seven hills, on a clear day, you could see those white hills at Hierapolis. So Jesus is showing from their local situation what he means by lukewarm works. I mean, if your works were cold, that means they would provide spiritual refreshment to those who are around you. 
You willingly would share the washing of water by the word of God with your neighbors so they could be refreshed in their spirits. If your works were hot, even your words would provide healing for your neighbors who might be struggling with some physical ailment or, or maybe a realization that they've, where they stand with regard to a righteous God that you just told them about. But he says, your works, Laodiceans, are lukewarm. You're just trying to get along, to go along, without showing any signs of Christ's love and concern for your neighbors. In some situation, what was in Ephesus, so I think only worse. Now, that's a horrible situation to be in. I mean, if you're a spiritual chameleon, you just blend in with your surroundings, why does Jesus need you? So my reconstruction, my backstory, of the situation in the church in Laodicea looks like this. Facts and then a bunch of suppositions thrown in. Epaphras and that runaway slave Onesimus brought a copy of Paul's letter to Colossae to them, along with a letter to Philemon. When the church was meeting in the house of Philemon, the owner of Onesimus, apparently he was a fairly wealthy man in Laodicea. Now fast forward 30 years to Jesus' letter to Laodicea in Revelation. It addresses the next generation, the sons and daughters of the original church members who got that first letter. So I think that the, the, the part of Colossians that they remembered or were taught is about the need to conduct yourselves in a moral way. And I call this the second generation principle, something that's seen all too often in the history of the church. So the first generation, we'll call it generation one, is the one to whom Christ is the major player in their lives. They're zealously committed to him at a very personal level. And Jesus revolutionized their lives. They're bold in their witness. They're bold in what they do. In short, they are true disciples. They look like their master. Now, if generation one settles in and they work hard and they gain material affluence, their children, generation B, will not have the same level of commitment to Jesus as their parents unless generation one works hard to put generation B into situations where they become committed disciples. If not, generation B will probably be fairly nice, moral people, but will not be as zealous for God's glory as their parents, because they're living on borrowed faith. And if nothing intervenes, then generation three will see Christianity as just a nice idea among other ideas that are probably better. So how do we as parents and grandparents, as support, keep from having a generation B? Well, first of all, make sure that you're a generation one, that you're a living and active disciple of Jesus. Because modeling a faithful life is where you have to start. Then I suggest, and this is free advice and worth every penny, you begin with the end in mind with your children. What do you want each one to know and to do when they, hopefully, leave your house for college, for a job, or for a spouse? So if I can go back and do this over again, I didn't do this very well. It was kind of hit and miss. Uh, but I would study the Gospels to see how Jesus developed disciples. Because I, in order to get a generation B to become another generation one, they're going to have to become Jesus' disciples. Well, how did Jesus make disciples? Well, he used talks, he used parables, he used stories, 
and use life situations in order to give them the content of what they need to believe. Because our, tr- our offspring need to understand what the truth is so they can discern what error is in comparison. But that's not enough. They need to know their Bible, not just the stories, but the whole sweep of the Bible and how it centers on Jesus. And how Jesus is a central figure, not just in the Bible, but in history. That's not enough. Because they also have to be able to apply truth to their lives. So they need to know the truth, then they have to apply it. Which was Jesus' pattern. He would teach them, and then he put them through a laboratory experience to make sure they understood the truth. Because everybody, when you're faced with it, after you've gone through a, a seminar or a teaching, you really think you know it until you go out and try to apply it, and then you find out, I wish there's some stuff that I picked up on that I missed. So Jesus would give them a talk on faith, and then he put them out in a boat in the middle of a storm. And when they came back, they would realize they didn't know quite as much as they thought they did. And they come back and sit down, and Jesus says, okay, lesson two. Jesus is the bread of life. Now go feed these thousands of people. So our progeny need to respond to life situations with prayer, with truth, even if they're ridiculed, with prayer, and with grace. I need to learn those things in probably a starting out at a very simple level, working up to the point where when they actually get ready to leave home, they can function independently. They're self-feeders. They know how to function, not only keeping the, you know, dividing, developing the life situation, their, their strengths spiritually, they also need to know how to stand alone for Jesus. I have a granddaughter that's going to YVC and she was totally shocked when she discovered the actual moral code of the girls on her floor. Uh, it took her a long time to figure out how to actually relate to individuals who had such wildly different lifestyles and ideas that she'd really never been exposed to. And she got to come home on the weekends. When you send your kid away to a school far away, it's even worse. Well, one thing I know that we used to play a little game that I got from uh, Odyssey <laughs> that, we, that we lived on when the kids were small. And that was this little game that they used to play that was called, you look at any situation, any event that took place, and the person that was involved, and you ask was, was that the right action or the wrong action? Was it for the right reason or the wrong reason? You can have some great discussions in the car or around the dinner table just by looking at a Bible story, looking at a situation that cropped up in the news, and saying, right reason, wrong reason. Right action, wrong action. Was it the right action for the wrong reason? You know, make, make the combination. And how many times can you find the right action for the right reason? It doesn't happen all that often, but it's worth looking for. You get them thinking, even at a young age, about what to do and the motive for doing it. Anyway, I, just, I throw those things out because I'm really concerned that if we just allow children to just kind of move along with the flow, that by the time that they get to be uh, adults, young adults, they really won't have the same level of trust and faith and discipleship level that you do, unless you take intentional action. That's my, that's my spiel. But I see signs in this letter, written to Laodicea, that Jesus is writing to, to Generation B Christians. They were nice polite, neighborly, morally upright, at least in public, but you couldn't see much of a difference 
between them and the earth dwellers who were the majority of the population. They were afflicted with affluenza, just like the rest of town. Which is, affluenza is a blending of in, affluence and influenza. It's used to describe people who are in a consumer-driven society who are never satisfied with their status and are in constant pursuit of more wealth and privilege. And as we all know, idolatry is contagious. Well, Laodicea was a very wealthy town at this stage in its life. Archaeological excavation, they've been going on in recent years uh, at kind of a feverish pace because the Turkish people know that there's a lot of money in tourist revenue, but they're doing a lot of excavations. And they've revealed in this town of probably 40,000 people at this time, they had two large theaters that could seat anywhere from 15 to 20,000 people each. Ephesus, who had 150,000 people, had only one theater that could seat 25,000. There was also a sports stadium that's the largest one that they've, able, that they've been able to excavate in Turkey, in Asia Minor. There were also five large agoras or marketplaces. Ephesus had two. And historically, when a second major earthquake hit that area, remember when we talked about it in Philadelphia, it hit in, in 17 AD, another big one hit in AD 60. And people of Laodicea told the emperor, we don't need your help. We'll fund this ourselves. What they did, they did the financing. So we, already, so we know that Laodicea was a major center for banking, for textile manufacturing, and it had a major medical school that specialized in eye diseases. Well, look all, notice also here that Generation B in Laodicea is not experiencing any persecution. They pose no threats to the lifestyle and the beliefs of the earth dwellers. They just settled in as nice people in their town who gave up part of their Sundays to go to church, probably, unless there was a good race at the stadium. So as a result, Jesus tells them that he finds their lukewarm works nauseating and threatens to vomit them out of his mouth. That's the word. Not a pretty picture. Not where I want to be. I'm hoping for well done from Jesus' mouth, not a gagging sound. So what is the root situation? What is the root cause of this horrible situation in Laodicea? For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The Laodiceans we see were lukewarm, but they were blessed with a wonderful self-image. They were convinced of their own spiritual maturity. They thought they were spiritually rich, and they had arrived. Jesus is telling them, you are utterly self-deceived. You don't even know, Jesus is saying, in my eyes, that you're wretched, wretched, pitiable, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So an essential part of being lukewarm is ignorance of your true spiritual condition and just being satisfied with the way that you are. So they were depending, apparently, on their affluence to the point that they had squeezed Jesus out of their lives. I am rich, and I need nothing. Not even Jesus. They'd come to love God's gifts more than the God who gives them. And they were squeezing out Jesus 
which now out of their lives, which is going to lead to Jesus' condemnation and could be their death. As Isaiah states the principle in Isaiah 42, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. So trusting anything else more than Jesus is idolatry. And God is a jealous God who will not share his glory, his power, his plans, or his life with an idolater. So God comes alongside and graciously lets the folks in Laodicea know their true condition so he can rescue them. So what is his solution to the problem facing the Christians in Laodicea? And I think by extension to us. If any letter applies to the, to the church in a particular church age in the United States of America, this is the one. What do I do if I'm convicted that I'm loving the gifts more than the giver? If I really pay attention to what Jesus is saying. Jesus says, I'm going to counsel you. I'm going to counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So Jesus has indicted them and he's warned them in the previous verses. He laid out the problem. And now in verse 18, he's going to begin to counsel. He's going to offer solutions, but they don't work unless you put them into practice like any good counsel or counselee relationship. The will of Christ for his church is that our poverty be replaced by spiritual wealth, that our nakedness and shame be covered with the robes of righteousness and walking in truth, that our blindness be healed so we can see things as they really are and escape from this fantasy world of self-satisfaction. So why does he choose these particular three items as examples of items to buy? Well, Jesus knows his church, and he knows where it's located. As I mentioned before, Laodicea was a very affluent city, one of the most affluent in the, in the empire, for that matter. And it gained its wealth primarily from banking and from textile manufacturing and ophthalmology. Now, if you remember back looking at, I think we looked at the, the church at Ephesus, the pagan temples functioned as the banks at that time. And gold was the preferred medium of exchange. So this suggests really to me that the Laodicean Christians had no problem dealing with the temples in order to stay in business. And of course that usually meant some kind of a sacrifice. Now archaeologists have found large temples in Laodicea, especially to Zeus and also to various emperors. And gold was in plentiful supply. About the time of this letter, Roman authorities had actually seized a shipment of gold, 30 pounds of gold, that's gone, gone from Laodicea to uh, paying for the temple tax for the Jews in Laodicea, temple tax being carried to Jerusalem. 30 pounds of gold. That was just to pay the temple tax in Jerusalem for the Jews that lived in Laodicea. Lots of money. Well, Jesus offers his superior gold. He says it's refined in fire. The apostle Peter interprets that expression for us. He tells us that our faith is like gold refined in the fire more precious even than gold that perishes, though it be tried by fire, is our faith. Faith in God. Faith in his word. Trust in him. And this faith comes from Jesus. So as we look to him, really, our faith is awakened and our faith is stirred. Now this church lacked faith in God, 
but was resting on its own abilities and on the resources that the world provided. And Jesus was squeezed out to the margins. We have everything. We don't need Jesus. Now, Laodicea was also known for producing finely woven woolen tunics. Black in color, they were a hot commodity in the empire. Jesus promises white garments, signifying purity. This is also a reminder that something that they should have gleaned from the letter to the Colossians about garment exchange. Put away the old manner of life and put on the new life in Christ and live a life worthy of the gospel. Because everyone is morally naked before God. Every one of us knows something about ourselves we don't want anybody else to know about. But God knows. He sees us in our nakedness. And what does he offer for it? Being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. White clothes stand for redemption, for righteousness imparted by Christ. We're no longer to be clothed with our own self-righteousness, which Isaiah says is nothing but filthy rags in the eyes of God. But we're to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ himself, a perfect righteousness that God accepts. White clothes also stand for a changed character. They mark someone who has taken his robes and washed them in the blood of the Lamb, as we are going to read about in chapter 7. So white clothing is a key symbol in the book of Revelation for holiness and purity. For example, and we're going to look at next week, when Marty takes us through part of chapter 4, around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Only white garments are good enough to be in the presence of the Lord himself. There's also a medical school in Laodicea that specialized in the treatment of eye problems. There was a substance in that area that was called Phrygian powder that was mixed with olive oil and it was applied to the eye as a salve in an attempt to heal certain kinds of eye ailments. It was known across the Roman Empire, this is, if you had eye problems, this is where you go. But Jesus says that they need spiritual eye salve that will enable them to overcome spiritual blindness. Now, Scripture speaks of an anointing of the Spirit that opens eyes to understand the truth of God. And John speaks of this in his first letter. In 1 John chapter 2, he says, The anointing that you received from him, from the Holy Spirit, abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has been taught to you, abide in him. So that doesn't do away necessarily with the need for teachers. It means that unless a spirit is in you, opening your eyes to the meaning of truth that you've read about or been taught, you're going to remain blind to spiritual truth. There's only one place you can get these things. From Jesus himself. When he says, buy gold from me, command. But, but how do you buy gold when you're broke? And Jesus knows we're broke. He just said so in verse 17. Not just broke, but blind, so we can't even see to work. And not just blind, but shamefully naked. We can't even leave our closet, let alone our house. So how do you buy gold and garments and salve when you're poor and naked and blind? How do you get the wealth of Christ, the power to be clothed with obedience the wisdom to see things the way God does when your wallet's empty, when you're too frightened and ashamed to even get out of your house. 
I think the answer is one of the most, uh, I think one of the most beautiful sections in Scripture, especially in light of what he just, the warning he just gave. It's a gracious offer the Lord makes to individuals who have squeezed him out of their lives and have replaced him with material wealth or, the, or affluence. So what does Jesus promise to Christians who say they don't need him? Here's what he says. I can't read that. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. You remember back faithful Philadelphia had an open door that no one could shut. Laodicea's door is closed to Jesus. So he's, he's telling his church, despite its terrible weakness and its failure, he says, I love you. And because I love you, that I'm going to rebuke you and discipline you. Of course, in my life, that reminds me of the way my father handled me as far as discipline was concerned and taking me aside and paddling me. That's a gentle way of saying it. Uh, and as he was doing it, saying, I only do this because I love you. This hurts me more than it hurts you. So you go away rubbing your behind and saying, I wish you didn't love me quite so much, man. Well, Jesus' love comes from pure motives that would often drive dads to discipline. But he's still our model. Jesus speaks with bluntness. Be zealous and repent. Because he loves his church. And he offers them a wonderful way out of their predicament of thinking that they're alive when they're actually dead. So how do you get this wealth of Christ, this power to be clothed with obedience and, and the wisdom to see things as God does when you're broke, naked, and blind? Well, Jesus gives the answer in verse 20. You don't go out looking. You invite Jesus in. You don't work. You pray. You ask Jesus in. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now that verse gets used most often as an invitation after sharing the gospel with somebody. Back in my Campus Crusade days, this was part of the four spiritual laws. That this is Jesus standing outside the door of your heart waiting to be invited in. And you've already explained that there's this great chasm between you and God, a holy God and a sinful you, and Jesus bridges that chasm, but you're going to have to open the door and let him in. I think that's a valid use for this verse, but it's not its purpose here. That's taking it out of its immediate context. His invitation here is somewhat akin to a velvet-covered brick. So first of all, the velvet. One way of looking at this passage is to seeing it's addressed to lukewarm Christians who think they have need of nothing more of Christ. They don't need him. So it's addressed to churchgoers who don't enjoy the riches of Christ, or the garments of Christ, or the medicine of Christ, because it keeps the door shut to the inner room of their lives. All the dealings that they have with Christ are business-like, lukewarm dealings, like with a salesman on the porch. But Christ didn't die to redeem a bride who would keep him on the porch while she watches television in the den. His will for the church is that we open the door, We'll open all the doors of our life. He wants to join you in the dining room 
spread out a meal for you and eat with you and talk with you. He wants to cook it and serve it and then sit down and talk. So the, the opposite of lukewarmness then is the warmth that you experience when you enjoy a candlelit dinner with Jesus Christ in the innermost room of your heart. And when Jesus Christ, who is the source of all God's creation, is dining with you in your heart, then you have all the gold, all the garments, all the medicine in the world. That's the velvet side. There's also a brick side to this. There's a warning. Jesus standing outside is uh, also a recapitulation of one of Jesus' parables. In Luke chapter 12. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. So Jesus' reproof here is also a warning knock on the door, summoning summoning those with ears to hear to jump to attention as servants would who are ready to greet their master when he returns at a time when they don't know. It's a surprise. So in Luke 12 and here in Revelation 3, the stress falls on the privilege of servants who are eagerly awaiting his knock and welcome his entrance. It's a door to the master's house, and he wishes to serve them dinner and eat together. This dinner, looking at it this way, is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God, the amen words of God. So looking at it from that perspective, Jesus' knock is not that, it's not that of a homeless traveler standing outside a locked door of a human heart seeking shelter. You can also see him pictured as the master whose servants are supposed to be ready to open to him as he returns. The knock is a warning that the master is there. The house is his own, and he graciously condescends to dine with his very servants. Now, the Laodiceans can't prevent his arrival by ignoring his knock. But their response to his warning, this very warning he's giving here, will determine whether his entrance, when he returns, will actually bring them joy, the joy of the banquet, or the exposure of their shame in final judgment. They must be actively serving their Lord as faithful servants so that he will find them standing for him in a world that normally hates them when he returns at a time when they don't know, and we don't know. And even more amazing, along with sharing a meal at the master's table, the one who recognizes the master, who serves him faithfully in the here and now, he says is going to share his messianic rule sitting with Jesus on his throne, even as Jesus in victory shares his Father's throne. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. There's that word conquer again, or overcome. As I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
So the promise to the victors, the promise to the conquerors, the promise to the ones who stay faithful, even when all the world around them is telling them they're, they're going wrong, or when you've been sucked into living by, by paying more attention to the gifts than to the giver, by letting affluence become your, your idol. All these promises to these people, he says, now he's, he's kind of pulling our hope ahead to the new Jerusalem in which the throne of God and the Lamb will be. So in order for that, this to be true for them and for us, we have to turn away, as we're going to see in the book of Revelation, from the pseudo-riches that are hawked by the harlot, and heed the knock of the faithful witness who will share Jesus' throne. Jesus has amazing things in mind for each one of us, things that we don't have any concept of at this point, which is good because we probably get a swelled head out of it. But. And so the text closes once again with a promise to those who conquer. He went through the indictment. He went through the diagnosis of the problem. And he's saying, if you'll respond, if you'll respond now and serve me and be faithful, regardless of the situation in which you're placed, even this affluent society, you need to stand for me. And maybe you have to stand alone. Maybe you won't be able to go to the temple anymore and do your banking. You may have to figure out some other way to do it. So this is the promise that he closes with, a promise to those who conquer. Christ conquered sin and Satan and death by never veering from the path of love. And it cost him his life. But he gained the whole world. And now he writes to his church, which is just as real for us this morning as it was as if he were handing you a letter personally. He writes to offer us a share in his universal rule if we will conquer, if we will stay faithful, if, if we'll overcome the menace of lukewarmness and not become smugly, spiritually self-satisfied, if we'll faithfully serve Jesus and him alone, if we put him first and don't push him to the margins. And there's only one way to get that kind of power and victory. Namely by taking all the locks off the door and asking the living Christ to come in and eat with you and to enjoy fellowship with him. That can be a wonderful thing. It can also be a warning for those who don't open the door. So we need, he's telling us on the one hand to need to be faithful, on the other hand be aware of the fact that Jesus is coming at a time nobody knows. And you need to be ready. You need to be in the process of faithfully serving him, of conquering, of overcoming. That's how, we want, that's how he needs to find you. Not counting your money in the back of your business. Let's just close in prayer. I thank you, Father. This is a, this is a stern indictment that not just applies to the church at Laodicea, but it comes frighteningly close to our situation in our affluent society as well. The temptations are the same. The enticements are the same. Maybe even stronger now. So Father, help us to be faithful. Help us to be discerning. Help us to, not only ourselves, but also our children and our grandchildren, help them all to become 
real disciples of Jesus. To understand what it is that you want of us and then to do it regardless of what the consequences. And Father, to also understand that we are here to serve you completely, immediately, and joyfully. That's what true obedience is. And I thank you that Jesus empowers us to do those things. And I thank you that that power lives within us through his Holy Spirit, the down payment of what's to come. And I thank you for that glorious future that you give us another hint of of what's to come. The fact that we'll we'll go from the place of seeing Jesus as a Savior to seeing Jesus as a ruler, a ruler over worlds. Other places in Scripture tell us we're going to judge angels, we're going to rule worlds. I don't know exactly what that means, but it sounds pretty good. It sounds pretty amazing. So I thank you, Father, that you are at work in our lives to bring us up short and then to also to provide the promise of your presence with us. And I just thank you for that and thank you for the comfort. In Jesus' name, amen.